Go ahead and take your Bible with me and turn to the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 7, the second half of 7, and we'll read the first half of, or actually the majority of chapter 8 as well. Because the passage is large, I'm going to go ahead and get going reading on it, um, and you can catch up as soon as you get there. Um, I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, and I'm going to read through Genesis chapter 8, verse 19. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily that on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole earth, under the whole heaven, were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep, and all flesh died. That moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed in the earth a hundred and fifty days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heaven was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. In the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her to the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. 
In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all of, is with you all of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. I think one of the most innate human desires is to, to be seen, is to be seen. And when I say seen, I mean something different, something different uh, than just to look at with your eyes or to be seen with one's eyes, but I mean to be really known or connected to. One of my favorite novels is by a, a man named Wendell Berry. It's titled Jaber Crow. Jaber Crow is the name of the man who, whose perspective the book is written from. It's sort of like a memoir, a fiction, fictional memoir. At the end of the first chapter, we're introduced to the woman he loves. And so you should all read the book, so I'm not going to give away what happens. <laughs> but, but these are the concluding words of the first chapter. She was a pretty girl, and I, moved, and I was moved by her prettiness. Her hair was brown, at the verge of red and curly. Her face was still a little freckled, but it was, here that it, her, it was her eyes that impressed me. They were nearly black and had a liquid luster. The brief, laughing look that she had given me made me ex feel extraordinarily seen, as if after that I might be visible in the dark. Jaber Crow was seen by Maddie Keith. Maybe you've had a similar experience with the person that you love. You've met someone who looked right through the barriers that you've constructed, the calloused and weary facade that you've erected, like a child clings to his or her blanket. But being seen means exposure, and exposure is is scary. In that moment, Jaber Crow was exposed more than he anticipated being exposed. God sees you for who you are. He sees you where you are this morning, and he sees what's going on in your heart and your life. We're all typically pretty bad at self-assessment. Our pride blinds us to seeing ourselves the way that we really are. And it causes us to criticize and condemn others and to rest in our own self-generated righteousness often. King David knew this to be true. In Psalm 139.23, he writes, you know this well, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases this verse like this. Investigate my life, O God. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. This represents the picture of what it looks like to want to be seen. Although I'm not really sure that we want to read the results always. We don't really want to know what we're really about. Maddie Keith saw Jaber Crow in his relationship to, 
first shows Jaber what he's really about. God sees everything, and I want to latch on to a verse, or at least a portion of a verse here in this large passage. There's so much contained here, and I think that um, trying to investigate it all in the next 25 minutes would be a mistake. But I do want to latch on to the beginning of chapter 8. Right at verse 1, we have a, a movement away. God has destroyed the earth with this epic flood in verses 11 through 24 of chapter 7. And then we get to chapter 8 and we see this little word, simple word, but a word that's important and always impactful when we read Scripture, the word but. But God remembered Noah. Chapter 8, verse 1 provides the hinge of this text, the turning point. And so that's where we're going to focus our time. So I want to make two simple observations from this text this morning. Two simple observations. The first of which, God saw, and I want to use that word saw as an important one, because God saw Noah and he remembered Noah. God saw that Noah needed God to be God. God saw that Noah needed God to be God. Now, that's an interesting phrase, but God remembered. This language here is covenantal. It's something that God is saying to him. The way that we use the word remembered um, is often as if we forget something. What have you forgotten? I, I, do you remember that guy from high school, we say? Or no, I forgot. I forgot who he was. I don't remember him. Or we say, do you remember where you put your keys? That was in the sermon. You need context for that. I'll give it to you later if you're interested. There's a different type of meaning contained here, though, when Moses writes in chapter 8, verse 1, that God remembered Noah. A different type of meaning here. It's a covenantal meaning. The remembering has more to do with the idea of being seen, like we talked about a moment ago, like Jaber Crow was seen by Maddie Keith, or by God, that God saw Noah, and he remembered Noah. He saw Noah in the midst of the floodwaters covering the earth, the floodwaters that killed every living thing. God saw Noah and knew what Noah needed. He needed God to be God and to fulfill the promise that he made in chapter 6, verse 18. When he said, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. Noah needed God to be God and to fulfill the promise that was contained in the covenant that he made or began to establish with him, establish with him in chapter 6 verse 18. God would deliver Noah through the all-consuming earth-destroying flood that killed everyone and everything as Noah floated along in the ark. And God would do it in order to keep his promise to establish that covenant with Noah. The text that we'll look at next week, that Blaze will preach from next week, is begins in verse 20 of chapter 8. And it shows us that God is, is faithful to his promise to establish a covenant with, with Noah. Noah needed God to be God. That seems like a simple statement, but that's what we all need. God is faithful to his promises. 
And this phrase, but God remembered, shows us that God is not going to be unfaithful in Noah's instance. He's going to act according to his character. And the the phrase is usually tied to God's delivering work. When you hear God remembered, it's the promise that God has made to deliver his people from whatever situation they find themselves in. We see this again in, in, uh, in Exodus. When, when God promises to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, in Exodus 2.24, he says, or, or it says, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And this initiates God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt. God is and God will fulfill his promises to deliver his people. The promise of deliverance made in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, where he tells Adam and Eve through his words to the serpent that he will crush, he will send one to crush the head of the serpent. God sees and knows what you need. You need God to be God. And so this is where we're at. If you are a Christian, your greatest good is contained with God acting according to his character. This is your greatest good this morning. God acting according to his character. God promised Noah that Noah would endure the flood and Noah was delivered through it. But if you're not in Christ, you can be sure that... God acting according to his character is in fact a terrible reality. God promised that he would blot out every living thing from the face of the earth. And he does it through this epic earth-destroying flood. And for those who were wicked, they experienced God's wrath in the form of this, this flood. So if you are in Christ, you are sheltered from the wrath of God... He clothes you in his righteousness and you pass through the waters of judgment because you are in Christ, as Noah was in the ark. Your greatest good is contained within God acting according to his character. Those who are outside of Christ find themselves in the midst of a terrible reality. Those who are in Christ, however, this holds comfort for us. God acting according to his character, God will never fail to deliver his people. The clearest portrait again of this is found in Jesus Christ. Would God fail to deliver his people from sin and and death? Absolutely not. He promised it in Genesis 3.15. He points to it through the story of, of Noah. If God delivered Noah from the judgment waters of the flood, how much more will he deliver you and me from sin and death? Why would he do that? Would he do it because you're great? Because you've got common sense? Because you've got a really good perspective on what's going on in the world? Would he do it because of your hard work and because you're a kind person? And no, a thousand times no. Rather, he will deliver you from sin and death because he is God. And it is his good pleasure to act according to his character. And to do anything other than act according to his character would make him not God. And that brings us to the next point. God saw that Noah had 
faith. So God saw that Noah needed God to act according to his character. And God saw that Noah had faith. Most of the question, do you believe that God is unchanging? Do you believe that God always keeps his promises? Noah believed it. As we progress through chapter 8, we see that the flood subsides. And the way that it subsides, and the way that Moses records it subsiding, actually corresponds with the days of creation that we see earlier in the book of Genesis, in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says that God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the water subsided. And this this corresponds with Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. And then in chapter 8, verse 2, we see the description of the sky. God created the sky on the second day in Genesis chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Dry ground appears in verses 3 through 5 in chapter 8. God created on the third day the dry ground in Genesis 1, verse 9. And in Genesis chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, Noah sends out a raven and then a dove. And the fifth day marks the creation of all things that fly, the birds of the air. Genesis chapter 8, verse 17, God tells Noah to exit the ark with the livestock. These are created on the sixth day. And so the story of Noah and the exit from the ark the floodwaters going down correspond directly with creation. And so we see this recreation of things happening. And we see similar language to the creation of man in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, not in our text this morning, but you'll see there, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So there's this recreation process as Noah exits the ark. You could then say that the events that led to Noah exiting the ark are recreation. It's a reset. It's a fresh start for all of creation, which is what God intended to do. But throughout this process, Noah had faith, and that's our point. God saw that Noah had faith. And last week, you'll remember, we touched on Hebrews chapter 11. We see this repeated time and time again. So much of Genesis 1 through 11 is about faith. Faith is essential for the Christian. As those who are part of God's people, there is nothing that is more essential than the belief that God will do that which he says he will do. It's not just a New Testament concept. Noah was not commended for his works. He's commended in Hebrews chapter 11 for his faith. But we need to see very clearly how Noah's faith works itself out. And it works itself out pretty explicitly in this text. Uh, Three things. Three things here. Three ways that Noah's faith works itself out. We said this last week, but Noah built the ark over a hundred year period. He was 500 when it started. When it started to rain, he was 600. Um, I thank God for microwaves. Microwaves are great because we can heat up our food quickly, especially because we have five small children who are always hungry. 
I, I thank God more, though, for my wife who takes time, even beginning early in the morning, to prepare healthy food for our family, oftentimes from scratch. She follows through, and she, she starts it, and we are the better for it. That's an all-day task sometimes for her, um, and it's not one that doesn't come with many, without many interruptions. And I can't imagine, though, a hundred-year task. A hundred-year task. Noah had this in front of him. He was called to do it. God gave him the dimensions, and it took him a hundred years. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, like, what is the force behind Noah sticking to it for a hundred years? The answer is God's word. God told him to do it. And I'm sure he woke up on some days and said, what am I, what am I doing? I'm 75 years into this process. 75 years into this process. I'm 575 years old. And I've been at it for 70. But he continued on. That is God-fueled faith. That should boost our own. So we ask ourselves the question, is God's word enough to sustain you? The answer is yes, it is. It sustained Noah as he constructed the ark over a hundred year period. This this will certainly sustain you through whatever comes your way in your life this week. The second way that we see it work out is that this is just culturally relevant, but Noah was the ultimate social distancer. You, You... you think that you're going crazy having to be distant from people more than, than usual. I, I am. But Noah was with his family in the ark for what seems to be, if we add all of these dates and all of this, for, for a solid calendar year. Maybe even a bit more. And when he finally can get out, everyone and everything else is dead. This is in this is crazy. What sustained God or what sustained Noah through this extreme isolation? This is extreme isolation. He had his wife and his sons and their wives with him, but man, the answer to what sustained him through this extreme isolation is God's word. Arkan Hughes says it like this: Noah displayed astounding endurance and faith as in the midst of confinement and discomfort, he waited patiently for God's deliverance. There is no record of, or evidence that God spoke to him during the months in the ark or that Noah had a new word from God, but he preserved in faith manifested by his amazing obedience and patience. The third way that Noah's faith works itself out here is that Noah sent out the birds with expectation. He sent out a raven and then he sends out a dove. I think that in this instance, if the raven goes out, it says he went out to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Um, I, I think that this would, would lead me to despair. And we were just thinking, like, Lord, will this ever end? But the third time, the dove doesn't come back. And I, I can't imagine the rush. Like, we've been in this ark for a year. It gives a boost of energy. The cautious hope that would continue to grow more and more as time passed without the dove, the dove returning. Must have found a dry patch. Did something happen? God is faithful. 
He said this would happen. We're going to get out. God has delivered us. Noah's faith works itself out through incredible circumstances. Incredible circumstances. God sustained Noah with his word. So in conclusion this morning, God remembered Noah. God is God and will fulfill his promises to his people. Do you believe that to be the case? God sees you this morning, and he sees where you are. He sees all of you. Not all of you like all of you, but all of you like every part of who you are as an individual. Like Jaber Crow was seen by Matty Keith, like God's son Noah. God knows what you need, and you need God to be God. Do you think that God has forgotten you? And I, I think that in the course of the last eight to ten weeks, I think it's been easy to think maybe God has forgotten you. He hasn't. He wouldn't be God if he ever forgot one of your eyelashes or any one of your blood cells or any one of your thoughts. Jesus Christ will use the story of Noah to grow and to flourish your faith. Meditate on that this week. If God can sustain Noah through a hundred year process of building an ark, if God can sustain Noah through a year of extreme isolation, or through failed attempts to find dry land. His word will sustain you too. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus is the author, the founder, and the perfecter of our faith. He establishes your faith and he grows your faith and brings your faith to maturity through his word. You can't go on believing that God has lost sight of you. You can't go on believing that God's word is negotiable to God. You can't go on thinking that God is like a man that he should lie. If God through Jesus Christ has delivered you from sin, the very thing that separates you from him and has stomped out the death that has come as a result of that sin, how could you believe that anything that you experience today or tomorrow or the next day would cause his words to no longer apply to you? Nothing is hidden from God's sight, and He is sovereign over all things. He is God, and your life doesn't prove that He isn't. Your difficulties haven't prevented Him from batting 1,000. COVID-19 hasn't gotten a, gone against a strike against Him. Failing economies don't prove Him impotent. You know this. Some of you do. At the end of... 2019, in the beginning of 2020, personally, I, I felt, felt pretty lost. Just a few short months ago, I felt like a, a failure as a husband and as a, as a father and as a pastor and as a friend. It wasn't entirely circumstantial, although uh, some circumstances caused the feelings to become inflamed and more painful. It's a season of my own heart. I don't know what brought it on or what what will bring it to a conclusion. And God's grace came to me in, in a few ways and still in other ways. The book of Hebrews, a memoir that I read, um, and the book that I mentioned earlier, Jaber Crow. 
And, and at the risk of going English major on you, sorry, um, I want to read just a simple passage that comes at the end of this book. It's doubtful that I'll be able to make it through it. So just thank you, bear with me. Imagine a hunter, some, somebody from a city some distance away who has a job he doesn't like and who has come alone out to the country to hunt on a Saturday. It is a beautiful, perfect fall day, and the man feels free. He has left all his constraints and worries and fears behind. Nobody knows where he is. Anybody who wanted to complain or accuse or a collected debt could not find him. The morning that started frosty has grown warm. The sky seems to give its luster to everything in the world. The man feels strong and fine. His gun lies ready in the crook of his arm. Though he really doesn't care whether he finds game or not. He has a sandwich and a candy bar in his coat pocket. And then, not looking where he's going, which is easy enough on such a day, he steps onto the rotten boards that cover one of those old wells and he goes down. He disappears suddenly out of the lighted world. He falls so quickly that he doesn't have time even to ask what is happening. He hits water and goes under, comes up, swims, or clings to the wall, inserting his fingers between the rocks. And now I think you cannot help imagining the way it would be with him. He looks up and sees how far down he has come. The sky that was so large and reassuring only seconds ago is now just a small blue picture of itself far away. His first thought is that he is alone, and nobody knows where he is. These two great pleasures that were his freedom now have become his prison, perhaps his tomb. He calls out, for might not someone chance to be nearby just as he chanced to fall into the well? And he hears himself enclosed with the sound of his own calling voice. How does this story end? Does he save himself? Is he athletic enough maybe to, go, to get his boots off and to climb out, clawing with fingers and toes into the grudging holds between the rocks of the wall? Does he climb up and fall back? Does somebody, in fact, for a wonder, chance to pass nearby and hear him? Does he despair, give up, and drown? Does he despairing pray finally the first true prayer of his life? Listen. There is a light that includes our darkness. A day that shines down even on the clouds. A man of faith believes that the man in the well is not lost. He does not believe this easily or without pain, but he believes it. His belief is a kind of knowing beyond any way of knowing. 
He believes that the child in the womb is not lost, nor is the man whose work has come to nothing, nor the old woman forsaken in a home in California. He believes that those who make their bed in hell are not lost, and those who dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, or the lame man at Bethsaida pool, or Lazarus in the grave, or those who pray, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, have mercy. Let's pray.